G'day and welcome to the Beyond the Message podcast. Hey, it is great to have you here listening today. My name is Lockie and I'm the host of this experience. And really my job is to help guide those 167 hours beyond Sunday or beyond the message so that you can grow in your faith all throughout the week. Now you might notice there's been a few weeks without a Beyond the Message podcast and that's because we're trialing something brand new over here on the podcast. Today we're going to be unpacking the entirety of the Christianity's Biggest Challenge series. So rather than go week by week, we're going to go series by series for the next little while so we can unpack each topic in a much deeper way. So on this podcast, we've collected a bunch of questions that have been asked throughout our connect groups throughout the last few weeks, and we unpack those questions in great detail. So today, Chris and I, we sit down for about 45 minutes and we chat through the entire series and all the questions that have come up. Hey, we really hope you enjoy this new format of the podcast. And if you have any questions that you want answered, please go to our website and we will make sure to answer them on the next episode of the Beyond the Message podcast. Well, Chris, we're on to talk about Christianity's biggest challenge. Now, before Mm. we get into the actual challenge, I thought it was hilarious some of the responses that came through (laughs) from people who were like, yeah, we think this is Christianity's biggest challenge. Now, um, two questions for you, Chris, which were the Mm. funny ones, like what what just uh, yeah. you know stood out to you is just kind of hilarious and then yeah. what are, what were some other challenges that people are kind of thinking that might be christianity's biggest challenge yeah i think for me the funniest the funny ones were like memes um christian meme christian memes apparently are a challenge <laughs> for people um and like birkenstocks and yep. t- you know like termites on the ark um those, those, <laughs> I'd never heard that one before. And I was termites, like, oh, man. Someone thought Christianity's biggest challenge was the fact that there was termites in the ark. Yeah, like <laughs> how do you account for that? So um, <clears throat> then, then you uh, you definitely had like things like the way uh, Christians treat each other, Christians' views on sexuality, um, the local church and, and how it behaves in the world. Um, so those were kind of sort of the, a lot of them had to do with Jesus' followers, actually, mm. um, as opposed to, to God. There were, there were a few that were like, existence of God, can you prove it, that sort of stuff, but but not really. A lot of it were more like people's experiences or things, the way people might have a perception of Christianity's teachings, I think. Yeah, definitely. My personal favourite was man buns. And for those who might be exclusive audio listeners to the podcast yeah. and might not know Chris and I, uh, we've both got man buns. And yeah. on the Sunday, which we posed this question, we were we were both on stage hosting and and uh, Chris giving the message. So someone was was having a fun time claiming man buns there. Someone was that person was in my phone too. So I know <laughs> I know the identity of that person. <laughs> no, that was that's really cool. I, I like that we gave people um, a chance to to voice what they thought Christianity's biggest challenge was. Um, Chris, you obviously have your own um, version of what you think this challenge is. And can I just get a, before we go into our Mm. questions for today, why do you think this particular challenge of history is the biggest challenge and um, and what really inspired this series? Well, I I think because of that, like kind of what you said, like there are so many challenges to Christianity and there's so many different things kind of going on that, that stand in the way of people following Jesus. And so the goal with this series was to look at the, uh, the fact that like, hey, it's not that those challenges aren't valid, but, but what if there was one challenge that meant you didn't have to have your challenge at all? What if, what if you could kind of pull Christianity apart in a different way 
which meant that like, you know, God's view on sexuality or the way Christians treat each other was sort of a secondary issue. And so that's kind of what I want to draw people back to, because I think so often um, there are so many things that are barriers to people embracing and asking some of those, those faith questions around Jesus. And I think if we can put it front and center on the table and we can talk about things like the resurrection, we can talk about like, hey, is the Bible a legitimate document? Um, that's a better place to start because if it's not legitimate and the resurrection didn't happen, don't worry about having a challenge. The rest of it, those challenges don't need to be, don't need to be challenges. You can just already leave at the first point. So yeah, I wanted to give uh, people an, an easy off-ramp if they wanted to get away from Christianity, make it really clear what the, what the big deal is about it. Fantastic. Well, we've actually collected a bunch of questions that have come in from our connect groups. So we really love connect groups here at Beyond, and we want to make sure um, that that's an available next step for every single person that wants to take a step further or, um, you know, in their relationship with Jesus to get in a group. We always say, Chris, circles are better than rows. Like, I don't know, my personal experience of being in a group, I'm sorry, Chris, but I probably learn a bit more from being in a group than I do listening to you on a Sunday. Uh, that's all right because because (laughs) i learn more being in a group than i do talking on sundays so i'm I'm glad you don't take offense to that because that's what we believe like we have a conversation and we get to unpack what something means on a personal level we're always going to go further um especially in that context of community so um we've collected some questions that have come up from various connect groups for this um for this series and and so these questions are potentially questions you've asked as the audience um, but ones you might be having as well. So we've got two really clear categories of questions. One is about um, stepping into this idea of the historical ac- uh, accuracy of the Bible. And then our second part of questions, um, a lot actually came through, Chris, about Jesus and his ministry. Um, yeah. And and I just looked at these questions. These are just great questions. Some of these questions I would never, ever think to ask. So these questions got me pondering them as i was like researching and getting ready for this episode um yeah. so kudos to all the connect groups for asking this because it, it was really insightful and i learned a lot in this process no that's great so we'll start this first part of the podcast <clears throat> talking about the questions based on the historical accuracy of the bible now this question um again has come in from a group it says this if jesus knew validity was going to be an issue why didn't he do more to validate his existence that's, that's a pretty common question. It's kind of like the idea of, you know, um, another way to frame that would be, hey, if God wants everyone to know about him and to be saved, then why didn't he make it super obvious? Why didn't he write his name in the sky? Why didn't he inscribe like made by God on every piece <laughs> of DNA? Right. If he came back now, we'd have YouTube and TikTok yep. and podcasts and news. And like, yep. it would be you might not believe in Jesus still, that's okay, but you would know about him and you'd know that there's someone pretty significant floating around. Yeah. And so, look, he, he, what I wanted to do first is I wanted to look at a couple of assumptions that are in that question because it's a really great question. Like I said, all of these are. But there's a couple of assumptions in there that I wanted to, to surface. And the first is, that, uh, is the assumption that um, as evidence increases, someone's desire to act on the evidence increases. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is that um, is that more evidence means that more people will have a saving relationship with Jesus. So I want to let me deal with the first assumption first. That the first is the, um, assumption that we kind of mentioned is that um, if evidence increases, then my desire to act on that evidence will increase. 
Um, but I just don't see that to be the case in the world. I see why people want it to be true about faith. But you think about, um, for example, we know that you texting on your phone is the equivalent of drunk drink driving. We, we know that, yet we still have to enforce a $1,000 fine to stop people texting on their phone. Because even though there's a whole bunch of evidence and there's studies around that, we still can't get people to stop. And so, I mean, there's a whole, any, any different number of ways, you, pieces of evidence you could kind of put on the table. But I, that assumption that, you know, just because there is more evidence and it's by credible sources doesn't necessarily give me a desire to act on that evidence. Yeah. Think about the COVID messaging there, like stay home, like, and just the, the marketing that went into just um, spreading the awareness of like how it's a dangerous thing. And, and it's like people would still go out and have these massive parties or whatever it was. Like, that's just another example there. Completely, completely agree with you. Um, and I think even on TikTok, there was a, a really interesting study. Um, and, and again, I don't want to offend anyone. I'm just looking at what I was seeing, but there was, I think it was um, compared between uh, New Zealand and then Hong Kong, I think. And it was looking at like vaccination rates and the amount of hospitalizations. And it was something like, you know, minuscule in New Zealand where the vaccination rate is incredibly high and then really high in Hong Kong where the vaccination rate is really, really low. And they were just looking at effectively the efficacy of vaccines within that data. And yet we still have people all around the world um, who for them, it's, it's not a, it's, that is not a compelling enough reason to act. And I think the thing is the same thing is true. Uh, when it comes to faith. So this, the second kind of assumption there that I mentioned at the start is that more evidence means that more people will have a saving relationship with Jesus. Um, and, and so I think it's important for us to make the distinction that um, believing that God exists is not the same as having a relationship with Jesus. Um, the religious leaders of Jesus's day believe that a God existed, but they didn't have a, a specific relationship with Jesus, you know, depending on how well you know um, New Testament, there's times throughout the New Testament where Jesus is um, uh, kind of casting out demons and it seems that the demons know who Jesus is. So they believe there's a God, but their faith is just not in that God. Um, so maybe if we had more evidence, maybe more people would say that God exists, but we can't really know that. And just because we have uh, would have more evidence, um, maybe more people wouldn't know Jesus. That's kind of um, the challenge. I, I think um, what it comes down to for so many people is, is when, when it comes to faith, I think a lot of people are searching for certainty because one of the, one of the questions I would love to ask whoever asked this question um, or the group of people who asked it is what would be enough evidence? What's the line for you that would be enough evidence? And I think a lot of people are searching for certainty and that line doesn't exist in, in really anything in life. You know, um, just because you get married, it's not, it's not certain that you're going to see the end of that marriage. Like your friendships, it's not certain that you guys are going to see the end of that friendship. Your career path is not certain. And so um, I don't know. I don't think it's fair to ask the same thing of faith. Um, I think a much healthier approach is to ask, you know, is to look for a faith that's reasonable, you know, to ask is, hey, given the evidence available to me, is it reasonable for me to place my faith and my trust in Jesus? And I think if someone is sincerely seeking to know God um, and discover, hey, is God real? I think they'll find 
um, more than enough evidence to to help support them on that. Um, a great place to start if you're kind of wondering. Um, there's a great website called reasonablefaith.org. Reasonablefaith.org, um, or there is a two really great introductory books. Um, on Guard by William Lane Craig and I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Churek. Um, and if you want to shoot me an email, chris at beyondchurch.com.au or just drop me a DM on Instagram, I will um, gladly send you a copy of one of those books. Fantastic. That's awesome. Um, to go personal for a second, Chris, like for me, I don't believe that the whole idea of like historical accuracy and validity was a massive barrier for me to my faith. Um, for you, Chris, was that something that you needed a lot of like clarity over before you decided to put your faith in Jesus or like, you know, in your faith journey, was, was this side of thing important to you? Because I'm guessing from, from this person's question, it might be something that they're wrestling with, but I, I have to recognize for me as well, like, and for some people who are listening, it's just not something that is like too much of a big deal. Yeah. Look, I would say that because um, I grew up in church, I would say uh, not not a massive deal early on in my um, faith journey until I got um, into university and when I was writing my thesis in the resurrection where I really started to question um, the historicity of the scripture and whether um, the New Testament was legitimate and how do we know that a resurrection occurred if it happened all those thousands of years ago. That was, for me, a really... Um, a really big deal. And I remember I would, I would, you know, just being honest, I was on the phone um, to Emma, who's my wife now, she was my girlfriend at the time. And I was like, Hey, if this, if this thing like isn't legitimate, then like, there's no point believing in it. Cause it's just a made up story. Like it's just uh, a made up story. So I kind of like navigated that. And for me, um, for me, yeah, I, I would say later in life, it was a very big deal um, for, for me kind of like having the faith that I have now. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess overcoming that, what would you say to a person at the moment who among the things that are preventing them or stopping, you know, a, a barrier for them in faith, for those who are thinking that this is an issue for them, what kind of um, steps would you recommend that they take? Yeah, I think, again, I think it's one of those things. It's like um, I think the book is a great place, like On Guard by William Lane Craig, yeah. I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. My, my thing is always uh, always look at both sides of any argument and weigh the evidence for yourself. Um, and that that was really, really helpful to me because I think like, again, like um, anyone who knows me knows that that I love to read people who have opposing viewpoints to me. Like I've read all the Richard Dawkins and I've read all the Daniel Dennett books and the Sam Harris books and the Bart Ehrman books. And they're really, really fascinating. But I think sometimes we can do that and we, then we don't read the opposing side and the Christian worldview. And there's always um, rebuttal and <clears throat> points on both sides. So I think when you weigh it up, um, take the cumulative case of evidence. Don't just pick one piece and go, oh my goodness. Like, you know, it's kind of like a, a good example would be, you know, you're married and uh, one day you come home and uh, the person you're married to hasn't emptied the dishwasher and you just go, oh, you know, well, my love language is acts of service. And, you know, this just proves that they don't love me anymore. When the cumulative case of evidence is that nine out of 10 times they will empty the dishwasher. And the cumulative case of evidence said maybe they just had a late day at work today. And so I think when you get so laser focused on one little piece, it, you can miss the whole cumulative case. So I would say um, keep working through it, read widely on both sides, and don't get undone or stuck on one little piece. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind the whole 
case of evidence for the existence of God. That's super helpful. Um, thanks for explaining that, Chris. I'm really sure that's going to bless someone today. Um, the second question about the historical accuracy of the Bible is actually, I guess it's it's not about the Bible. It's asking, is there historical evidence that is extra biblical for the resurrection? Like, you know, we've got a Christian document that says the Christian worldview, but is there a non-Christian document that that really says, hey, this did happen? Because um, that's a that's a yeah a massive barrier for some people in faith. Yeah. And before I answer this question, we kind of talked about this in, in part one and two, really, of this series. I think it's, it's really helpful for people to understand that when historians look at the documents that make up the New Testament, in their mind, they're not thinking the Bible. Uh, these, these historians are thinking them as legitimate texts from ancient history. And it's actually often one of the reasons why, if you ever come to beyond, uh, very seldom will you ever hear me say the Bible says because I want you to understand the documents, the people behind them, that these were real people who had real lives and real jobs and real experiences who wrote these documents. They weren't written in a vacuum. Um, And so I think that's just kind of an important note that historians don't look at extra biblical stuff as more reliable and biblical stuff as less reliable. They look at it all on the same playing field and they decide which is historical and which is not. Um, Now, moving on to this actual question, I think in order to answer this question, it really depends on what the person means by evidence for the resurrection. Um, Because there are plenty of things recorded within extra biblical sources that I would say need a resurrection for their existence to be validated. But there's not necessarily too many biblical sources that document the events about the resurrection because those biblical sources, those extra biblical sources weren't focused again on those events. Like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing biography on the life of Jesus. So any biography about the life of Jesus is naturally going to include the resurrection. A lot of the sources we have from ancient history, like um, Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger, they're writing histories of the Jewish people or of Roman emperors. And Jesus is added in as an aside talking about that. So let, let me just pick two examples for anyone listening in case they're like, okay, well, give me an example of something that the resurrection would need to be validated. Um, in the Jewish historian Josephus, he talks about specifically the stoning of James and he uses the identifier. We looked at this in part one. He, he kind of says, hey, if you're wondering which James I'm talking about, I'm talking about James, the brother of Jesus Christ. And um, from biblical sources, We know that James didn't believe in his brother during his lifetime. But then in extra biblical resources, we discover that James was actually stoned to death as a martyr for his belief in his brother, that he was the savior of the world. Now, you have to be able to explain that. Like, how is it that Jesus's brother went from despising him in in Christian literature to then in non-Christian literature being killed for his belief that his brother was his savior. It, it, it almost like if you were trying to make it up, you'd almost switch them. Like in the yeah. Christian literature, he'd always believe in his brother. And in the non-Christian literature, he wouldn't believe, but it's the actual, it seems to be the actual, the opposite. Um, you know, in the Christian literature, he didn't like his brother and then he became a follower. And then in the non-Christian literature, we find out he, he was actually martyred for his faith. Again, that's not included in the Christian literature, because in the Christian literature that we have, particularly the book of Acts, which documents the early church, um, we, we don't get to that part of James's story. You know, it's not really a focal point of the story. So um, Josephus talks about, so that, again, 
you have to be able to explain that. So something happened there, right? Mm. Um, the, the second extra biblical piece of evidence I would mention for the resurrection uh, is the church. And that's something that's, that's often missed because of a general lack of understanding of Jewish culture. Um, is that, and, and, and because of that, like what Jewish culture would have thought is that when Jesus died, um, they weren't expecting him to return three days later. They had no concept of that because of a, Jew, a Jewish Messiah didn't actually return in time. A Jewish Messiah returned at the end of time to sort of set all things right. And so um, the fact that Jesus' followers were scared, Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us that for a moment um, he says the movement was quashed, but then it came back with all, like almost more fervor and then it began to explode in Jerusalem. Um, and, and if only looking at extra biblical sources, like, and, and we see this, one has to ask the question, what could make a scared group of followers suddenly willing to die for their belief and come out of hiding and get other people to believe in that? And at the very least, I think you have to conclude that something significant happened that mm. caused that change. Now, what you posit there, yes, you can put anything there, but, but something super, super significant had to happen. A, to give them a brand new theology, especially one that didn't exist at that point in time, but then also to completely change their outlook on the world. Yeah. Wow. That's, um, that's compelling. And Chris, I do believe we have a video on YouTube that just gives a really broad overview of some of those documents. Um, yep. One of the first, well, beyond a home, I can link that in the description. Yeah. It's called, did Jesus exist? You can check it out on there. Check it out. Fantastic. We've well, pointed us to some great resources across those two questions about the historical accuracy of the Bible. So thank you so much for that. Now, mm. moving on to our second part of the podcast, which is about Jesus and his ministry. I'm super excited for this because the question I haven't included in your notes there, Chris, um, did Jesus have a mullet? <laughs> we need to know. <laughs> that is such a, I, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they had razors sharp enough to, to cut yeah. in a mullet back then. Oh, surely they would have worked it out. Surely that's what teenage boys just got up to was just how can we make them like, how can we make the mullet work? Yeah. Maybe look, Jesus definitely had long hair. He was a Middle Eastern man. He had long hair in the first century. Long hair like us, or he know? probably he pro well, I don't know if he had a man bun, but have a man bun. I'll tell you what, Jesus would look good in a man bun, that's for sure. <laughs> man bun Birkenstocks, the modern Jesus. How great. <laughs> well, I've got some great questions again coming from our, our connect groups today, hmm. Chris. Um, first one, really interesting. Why did Jesus stay in a local area? and not spread out into the rest of the world? So these questions just made me think that like they need to change every Bible college curriculum because they're not, they're not, answer, they're not teaching the uh, church leaders of tomorrow what people are asking. So <clears throat> that's it. So for anyone who's not familiar, Jesus probably would have lived and traveled in a region around about from Brisbane to Noosa. If you sort of, you know, maybe about a two-hour drive, hour and 45-minute drive, Jesus would have walked and lived in that kind of a region. Um, I think this goes back to what we spoke about a little bit in the previous question, is that often um, we're not super familiar with Jewish culture. And so we can kind of miss some of the nuances of that. Um, and so 
Jewish culture, I think, gives us a lot of context in answering this question is that Jesus didn't just pop into history in isolation, but he actually came as a fulfillment of prophecies that had been given to the people of Israel. So Jesus was the fulfillment of the old covenant, um, the old law, and was ushering in the new. And so back in Genesis, God says to Abraham um, that through his family, the whole world will be blessed. And Jesus is actually the fulfillment of that promise. And that through Jesus, the whole world would begin to be blessed. And what's interesting is he left it to his disciples to go into all the world. So Jesus kind of came primarily to to the Jewish people. Yes, he did talk to people who weren't Jewish, but he actually left it to his disciples. In fact, his parting words are, hey, now, now that I've come to you, now go into all the world and tell people about it, which I kind of think is like pretty humbling. Like those of us who are followers of Jesus, like Jesus had his purpose and now we have ours, which is to go into all the world. But so for me, um, the Jerusalem temple was was the epicenter of the Jewish faith. Jesus was a fulfillment of uh, Jewish prophecies and the Jewish Messiah. So that's why he stayed local uh, in that region. You answered that much better than I would have. I would have just said that Jesus didn't have a Tesla. And uh, <laughs> he was just, he was, he was on foot. <laughs> that's all I can say. <laughs> that's, look, I am just not as creative as you. That's why. <laughs> I'm clearly not as, uh, you know, looking at the, the Old Testament root of, of that question. I'm just like, yeah, he was walking around. <laughs> it is cool to see how, like in the book of Acts, though, how the movement does spread. And like yes. the sense of if you look at the world now, like that's come from exactly, it's a, you know, a progression of the Acts story of, the, um, of Christianity into the world. We're well, living in a really interesting time where Christianity has spread through the world to uh, and I don't know the exact stats and figures. There are some people in the world in regional rural areas that have not yet heard the name of Jesus, but like it's pretty much in the whole world. Well, and, and, and kind of what you said there um, is actually a really good point, Locke, because really, we've got to remember that before, before like it, it was only really around the time when the Roman Empire came into effect that they started to have road systems that connected all these places and that port cities became to be a thing and that we start they started to have industrial trade routes like that that was pretty new in the first century so like traveling much outside a specific area it wasn't that like jesus didn't do it it was just that nobody did it because <laughs> there wasn't the ability to do it yeah before actually do you think jesus knew there was other countries like is like what was the extent of what they thought the world was at that point Oh, they, they would have definitely known because there would have definitely been foreign traders um, coming through. But it just in terms of like everyone yeah. traveling and everyone being able to do it, it, it was very, very much. Because uh, remember, uh, before Jesus, you had Alexander the Great who kind of swept across uh, Europe. It, but it was, again, it was much more like traveling was you had to have a lot of money to travel because you had to, to pack up donkeys and take people. You had to take a whole posse with you pretty much. So yeah. it was usually only reserved for the elite in society. Mm, yeah, no, very interesting. Well answered, Chris. Um, the next one is about um, Jesus and why did he wait until he was 30 years old to start his ministry? Mm, mm. Can I do the you answer here and just say like, that's just because that's just when God told him to. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. He, he hadn't yet like grown his full beard yet. Yeah, and, his like, beard wasn't His in. Birkenstocks hadn't arrived. So he was just holding out. Look, again, I would say to actually to the next couple of questions, I, I don't know the answer to the next couple of questions we're going to ask, but I think there's some things we can infer 
or kind of have a really good guess at. So for me, the most logical reason why Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was 30 is because rabbis um, in Jewish culture weren't considered mature until they were 30 years old. So, which meant that the youngest you could become a rabbi, excuse me, was 30 years old. So that's kind of when Jesus began his ministry because that was when he was considered mature enough in the eyes of the Jewish people to begin any kind of public ministry. If he came in younger, his whole culture would be like, no, like, you need yeah, a little right. bit so, more time. So culturally, it just wasn't a thing. Um because, you know, like Chris, you've gone through Bible college. I'm currently in Bible college and in ministry. Um, you planted a church at, what, 25 years old? Yep. Um, did anyone ever tell you, well, hang on, Jesus wasn't 30 until he started his ministry. Go get some real world experience um, before you think you can come out here and, and be better than Jesus, Chris. Uh, no one put it quite like that. Okay, let good. me let me just say that <laughs> uh, no one put it quite like that. No, but uh, yeah. So again, I, I like it was part of the Jewish custom because you had to follow a rabbi for a period of time, and so I yeah. Again, it, it was really like because when you became a rabbi, effectively where the, where where the slight difference is is at Bible college we learn all about Jesus. When you became a rabbi, it wasn't like you became like a pastor like we would think today. It was you actually took on the teachings of the rabbi that you sat under. And so before a rabbi would kind of let you become a rabbi, they pretty much kind of gave you a, you know, a defense of, hey, what do I believe about this? Tell me what I believe about this. Show me what I believe about this. And they would really push their pupils to then decide whether they would allow them to become rabbis because effectively when they were a rabbi, they were taking on their teachings. Yeah, wow. So there's no, nothing wrong with, um, you know, entering ministry, entering leadership, you know, below the age of Jesus, like, because culturally that seems to, to be a pretty normal thing, right? Yeah, different, completely different um, circumstances in the first century and access to technology and, and all of that sort of stuff. I think maturity is important. I think wisdom is important. Again, to compare ourselves to Jesus in ministry is kind of, a, uh, you know, because he's the son of God. So uh, I don't like to do that, but uh, I think there's, yeah, definitely great leaders who are under the age of 30 yes. in ministry. No, that's fantastic. So um, this next one is around Jesus' teachings. And um, I guess with this pre-knowledge that Jesus was active in his ministry from the age of 30 to 33, that's kind of historically yeah, accurate, yeah. right, Chris? Yeah, so a, a three-year period. So that's not a not a long time at, at all. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that Jesus had such a a short time here on Earth, how did he choose which things he was going to teach about? Um, you know, and and then how do we how did the the people that wrote the Bible know which ones to record and which ones to to just let slide? Ooh, that is a great question. That is a great question. So remember, um, uh, at the end of the book of John. John actually is really specific. He says, I've written these things so that you may believe. Mm. And Luke at the start of his letter, uh, at the start of his biography rather says, um, I'm recording these things so you can believe the, the, the events or the things that were fulfilled among us. And so every gospel writer had, had a slight agenda with how they were writing their gospel. Cause it's through their eyes, you know, like, um, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. We know that like Mark and Luke are probably a little bit more Gentile audience. Like John emphasizes the divinity of Jesus. Um, but so I think that's kind of like really the gospels are so we can, are so we can place our trust and our faith in Jesus. Now um, 
I would say very succinctly that Jesus, Jesus's teachings were all about ushering in the kingdom of God on earth. So while his teaching was very practical uh, and really relatable to the people that he was um, teaching and it was really helpful for them, what he wanted to do was give them a picture of who God is and what God's kingdom is like. So how did Jesus choose what to teach about? Well, he chose about chose to teach about things that help give people a picture of who God is and what God's kingdom is like. Mm. And so that's often why he talked about forgiveness the way he did, because he's like, hey, this is what this is how God views forgiveness. When he talked about money, he was like, hey, this is how God views generosity and money. When he talked about like sin and, and lost people and the, the, the parable of the two lost sons or sometimes known as the parable of the prodigal son, it was like, hey, this is how God views the religious people and the irreligious people. This is kind of giving, giving us a picture of who God is and what his kingdom is like. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I believe in one of the gospels, the kind of comment is, hey, if we recorded everything about the life of Jesus, yeah. the Bible wouldn't be the size it would be. It'd be like this just mammoth, mammoth book. So there's obviously a, yeah, a curation that the authors gave as to what they put in, maybe as well what survived. Um, that's another consideration there. Um, I'm going to add my own kind of follow-up question here because, mm. you know, those bracelets from like the 90s, the what would Jesus do? Yeah. Right. Do we have an answer or can we create uh, a conclusion that is biblical and backed up by evidence for every single question under the sun as to what would Jesus do? Like to the Gospels, because it's a pretty small part of the Bible when you, when you consider it. Like the Gospels is what? Yeah. It's not even a tenth of the Bible. So that's mm. the that's the direct teachings of Jesus. Do we have enough information there to draw conclusions on on if any issue that we can come across as a human? That, that well, I think again, I think it probably depends on on what what we mean in in, in respect to um, do we have enough evidence to draw conclusions about certain you know issues and topics. I think. Jesus is probably less concerned about some of our views on particular topics and more about how we treat people and how we love people who have views on particular topics. Um, it, it, so so that, somewhat, yeah. So he's somewhat amb like ambiguous about the things that we want to know about, but he's very clear about well, the behaviors well, of, of people in the kingdom of God. Yeah. So, so Jesus is definitely clear on certain things about how, you know, how God views particular things. Um, but, but for example, you know, one of the questions I've seen floating around on social media at the moment is, oh, what would Jesus think about vaccines? Like, and, and usually that's a question to try and get people to pigeonhole Jesus in, in one side of the debate or another. Is he, is he pro-vax or is he anti-vax? I think Jesus would say that regardless of what you're, position on vaccine mandates are is you should love everyone and that you should be gracious towards everyone um, especially people who don't agree with you and i think that is far more challenging to do than just get jesus to kind of subscribe to the position we hold on something yeah i mean like my interpretation of reading the gospel is jesus probably asks more questions than he does answer them you know, like I think he he intentionally doesn't give his straight up opinion. Like it, it's it's almost annoying. Like I don't know. That's that was uh, speaking before Chris about some of your, you know, becoming Christian and what mm -hmm. some of your barriers were. Like that for me was a big one. Like you know, Jesus just doesn't 
he's not very clear on, on a lot of different things. And that was quite difficult for me. He, he's very unfair. Uh, and, and we'll kind of talk about this a little bit in the next question, but he's very unfair in the sense of like, in some places he chooses to like heal people and in other places he, he chooses not to. And he treats uh, one person who's caught in adultery completely different to another person who's caught in adultery. And so um, what, what the, I think the challenge is and what that shows us is that um, life is never like healthy discussion and relationships are never lived on the extremes, that grace is incredibly messy. And if you want to get involved in people's lives, the solutions to the problems are, are found in the messy middle because grace is always really, really messy. So you've got to wade into the other person's stuff. And that means at times that you will be unfair, but grace is also unfair. That's the whole point of it. <laughs> right. So if I'm interpreting what you're saying, in a sense, like when we go for answers, Jesus' answers is always grace. Like it's like he just wants to like grace is at the center of what he's communicating to us. And sometimes we treat the Bible, we treat Jesus like a textbook or like a bit like Google. Hey, what would happen if this? And we want to get like really clear answers. But the answer is generally around grace. Like it's, it's around, it's, it's, the, it's, it's a little bit messy and it's not as clear cut, but it's all around like treating people with grace and understanding that um, God's given us just an incredible amount of grace. Yeah, I think that's probably a good way to phrase it. I think it's probably more on, again, on certain things, he is very, very clear, like, you know, that we're all sinners, we're all in need of a savior. He's super clear about that. Yeah. But then there are some things where he's less about like, gives us his opinion on a particular viewpoint and says, you know what I think about people though? People are made in my image and I love them and I mm. died for them all. And how do you treat people who are made in the image of God? We've got to treat them with dignity and respect and honor. And so I think that then challenges us to kind of go, well, is this really a, uh, you know, am I just trying to like, am I just trying to find out what Jesus says, kind of like the Pharisee, so I can justify a particular type of behavior mm -hmm. um, yeah. as opposed to caring for a person? So, yeah, I, I would agree with you. That's cool. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I think we've, yeah, I mean, I had a great discussion anyway, and probably annoyingly, like haven't given some answers uh, that you might still have. But I think the the big takeaway is that there isn't necessarily some clear cut answers. But um, going back to what you said, Chris, to, to just keep exploring and to read widely and look at opposing sides, like hopefully we've just hosted a conversation that is super inviting, very interesting, but also provides um, just what we think without saying, hey, this is what we think the answers are. Um, that's really our hope here at the Beyond the Message podcast. Any last I, comments, Chris, before well, you can, can sign can off? I, can I ask a question before we sign off? Yes. Did we want to answer the very last question? Oh, well, I, I completely missed that, Chris. That's okay. I think we, we should just, because... I didn't want uh, someone to be like, I submitted this question <laughs> and then we just kind of like, they're like, why didn't they answer that one? It's so true. Let's get to that. Um, okay. The question is this, and you actually touched on it a little bit how did Jesus choose which people to heal? And the opposite side of that is people not to heal. Um, so yes, we've got, we've got to get to this question before we sign off for today. So one, one, I love it, this question, because one of Jesus's constant prayers that he prays all the time um, over and over again is not my will be done, but yours. And he's talking, you know, to his father, he's like, Hey, not my will God, but yours. Mm. And so I don't think there's necessarily, um, you know, 
I don't necessarily think there's going to be an answer to this that the, the questioner was hoping for. Um, but, you know, so in Matthew 9, 35, we see Jesus healing every sickness and disease in the region he was traveling to. Um, but in Mark chapter 6, verse 5, uh, we see Jesus not healing people and walking away. And I think part of it comes down to the fact that Jesus is so deeply concerned with people that in some instances he knew that physically healing them wasn't what their soul needed. And perhaps healing them physically actually wouldn't do anything for their faith, even though it might fix an ailment. Um, and, and to us, that's kind of like, oh, well, that's a little mean. Like if he had the power to fix it, why didn't he? Well, because really Jesus primarily isn't concerned with our comfort. Like he's concerned with the condition of our souls. And while we don't know the answer or why, why I don't, let, let me just say, I don't, I don't necessarily have a good answer for why Jesus chose to sometimes and others. Um, my thought is that maybe Jesus thought, hey, you know, it's actually not the most helpful things to their souls that they were healed. And again, goes back to that idea that all everything Jesus did and all his healing and all his miracles were not just for the sake of doing it. It was always a way to point to God. And so I think that at some stage, Jesus was probably definitely trying to figure out if I just heal people, are people just going to come to me as like a, he's the magic man and he dishes out healing, 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 and people will miss the whole thing. People will miss the fact that I didn't come to heal. I came to save their souls. Mm. So that's, that's a potentially not helpful, but it might take <laughs> to that one. It's good. And it's, uh, it's relevant today as well. Like the purpose of, of Jesus being with us now is to, to heal our soul and to, yeah, save us in that sense. I think that's, that's mm. primarily what Jesus is, is up to these days still. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, is this the end now? Have I, I haven't missed anything on our, on our page there. I've got nothing left on my page. Fantastic. I've still got the burning question of did Jesus have did, did Jesus have a mullet? But we'll leave that for another week. <laughs> I'll I'll have to go and read the New Testament again to see if I can find an answer for you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for jumping on, Chris, chatting through the whole series of um, Christianity's biggest challenge and uh, giving us some clarity firstly as to what that challenge is, but then talking about those two key things of the historical accuracy of the Bible and questions about Jesus and his ministry. So thank you so much for your um, thorough research to go into this episode. No, I want I to say I want to say thank you to all the all the groups who submitted questions because it was uh, enlightening to me, and I love I love 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 some of these questions. They were fantastic. So thank you to everyone who submitted questions for this conversation. Too good. Well, thank you very much, and we will see you on the next episode of Beyond the Message Podcast. We will see you guys.